Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Five, four, three, two, one. Zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. Welcome to our second special Tennis Unfiltered podcast. Uh, Happy New Year. Uh, I neglected to say Happy Christmas on the uh, episode with George because I recorded it about 1st of November and I forgot entirely that it would be a Christmas Day episode. Uh, I'm here in our lovely studio once again, uh, courtesy of producer Dom once again, uh, with Calvin Beton, who I've subbed in for George, um, who's down doing pre-season. And we're going to talk a bit about Calvin himself, the great man, uh, which I know is going to make him extremely uncomfortable. Um, so uh, it's all right, Calvin. This is a safe space. No one's no one's going to hurt you. Um, although maybe memories of childhood may prove to be uncomfortable. Um, thank you to everyone who's been in touch over the last uh, couple of weeks. We've obviously done loads of Q&A episodes. Uh, loads of people have been asking questions. Some of them we got through, some of them we haven't. Um, maybe next year we'll do a Q&A, non-tennis Q&A, for Calvin and George and see if we can make some progress. Calvin, South Yorkshire born and bred in August 1978. Um, we often talk about uh, tennis as a, a working class or a non-working class. There's a lot of chat about class in tennis. Your dad owned a car garage, I think I'm right in saying. Your mum yeah. was a hairdresser. Would you describe your upbringing as working class? Um, yeah, I'd say so, but probably at the middle class edge of working class, like, you know, it wasn't, we were pretty, we were pretty comfortable. Mm. Um, so yeah, I would say so. What, Uh, what was your childhood like? Were you the only, only, only kid in the house? No, my brother was, I was until I was seven Mm -hmm. and then my brother was born. Um, (laughs) and you've regretted it ever since. (laughs) Uh, yeah, I said, I remember at the time I said, if, uh, if my mum told me and I said, if it, if I was having a brother, it was okay. If I was having a sister, it was going in the bin. (laughs) (laughs) Um, um, Luckily for him, he he was a boy. Mm. 
Um, what what was your relationship with him like when he came along? Were you immediately quite jealous or just relatively no, happy about we got it? On, we've always got on pretty well. Yeah. Um, you know, by the odd brotherly argument, we've always <laughs> got on pretty well. Um, we're quite different as... Um, in t- I mean, our tennis situations were different as well. Um, that's where you really saw the two differences in our personalities, I think. So we both played. you both played. They say the younger one is always the better one. They get stretched upwards. Um he was a better player than I. He had more ability than I did. But the thing with my brother is that he just has... He didn't at the time have any sort of competitiveness in him at all. And I was quite the opposite from that. So I won a lot more matches than he did. Like so, um, And he started, a lot, he started playing a lot younger than I did. Because I didn't start playing until I was... I didn't start playing seriously until I was 14. Mm. Um, like going to actual group sessions and... Uh, individual coach and getting coached really until I was 14 I played a little bit before then and so then my brother just started playing when I was um, when I started going so he started at seven yeah um, which he started playing what they called at the time was short tennis which was a sponge ball with a plastic bat mm-hmm. kind of got taken over by mini tennis um, what so what got you into this I know your dad was and still is a huge tennis fan I mean was that how you got into it or did you just play all sports no so my dad used to play but um he just used to play on a park court with his with four three of his friends on a Sunday morning I remember they always used to play at half nine on a Sunday morning <laughs> um and I'd sometimes go down there and watch and then have a knockabout with him after but then we started playing me and my mates started playing on the street um, and there wasn't a net, there was just a lining the paving, in the paving, <laughs> and so we'd hit it over there, and we just played, and then most of my mates, when I was when I was younger, like, up, like probably pre-10, or pre-teens, were all a bit older than me, they were all three or four years older than me, mm. um, and I was pretty good at tennis then, like, I could beat most of them then, even though they were a bit older, mm. and I never really um, played, and then my... Dad then, there was a there was a tennis club in Barnsley, but we never played there. My dad didn't play there. And then my dad joined and he said, oh, they've got these group sessions on. Do I want to start going? That was probably when I was about 12, 13. Hmm. And so I started going and me and one of my mates went. Um, and then I just kept going. But I was, I'd, I'd only go like once a week. And hmm. then there was maybe a summer camp or something that, that we went to. And I didn't really take it that seriously at that age. Um so yeah and was it the tennis that you enjoyed or was it the competition I feel like there's a, such a strong competitive edge to you um, yeah although I was playing football still more than tennis at that time there was a lot of football going on like on our street and like there was a lot of sport and that kind of thing just on the street but there was a few, quite a few lads around on our street and then on the streets around us we, we always have big football games mm. um, going on and then I guess I just pl- I went to tennis because like, it was something different to do and I quite liked playing it, mm. um, but then again, I wasn't that serious about it at that age. Mm. When did you start to realise that it was something you were good at and you could actually start to take quite well, seriously? Well, it's nothing to do with tennis; it's to do with girls. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I remember I was going to, um, at school, and I can remember it now. It was one particular day, and it was an it was raining, so it was indoor break. And an indoor break, you'd always like go and like just wander around the other classrooms. Wet and, play, like, it's the worst. Yeah, yeah. But then like there was a girl who was I, she was beautiful, and I proper fancied her. <laughs> and like her, I was chatting. I don't know whether she was there, but we were around her. We we're in her room, and her one of her binders was there. And on the on the binder, she had a picture of 
Edward Furlong, who was in Terminator 2, <laughs> who at the time was like an absolute superstar, hmm. and Andre Agassi was the other one. And I remember thinking, right, well, I ca- I'm not really kitted out to fight cyborgs from the future that are going to destroy the world, but I am all right at tennis. So... Um, <laughs> will go down that route so then i just started i was like then i was like right I've, i'm gonna play a bit more tennis so then i started playing a bit more and then as it happened around about the same time the coach who was doing the sessions at barnsley left um he went to move he moved somewhere else and they didn't get another coaching so then my mum and dad looked at um where else i could go and play and there was a, a quite renowned coach and group and squad at Huddersfield which is about 45 minutes from Barnsley mm. so we made the call that I would start going there I started Who's going the to him he was called Steve McLaughlin he was my coach from when I was from that age up until I stopped playing tennis really mm. um and he ran a really good camp at uh, Huddersfield at the, the the level was way above the level that I was at the time <laughs> I mean the players there were were basically county stroke, regional stroke, national players. And I was just an okay club player. Um, But I didn't realise this until a few years later, though, until Steve told me that I I wasn't good enough really for that. I was, I was okay. I could, I could be competitive in points, but I wasn't winning much. Hmm. Um, And he told me later on that basically he let me in and he let me go into it because it just changed the culture of his squad so there'd be about 12 players in it and they were all quite good but they were all quite chummy and he said that when I went in just through being the person I am I'd go in and I would start arguing with people straight away and I'd start <laughs> shit in and just going nuts at if I got a bad line call and he said like you know people kind of laugh at me and think what the chuffing hell is this like we brought in here but it did bring like a competitive edge and he said like from then on like in in the in the groups it, it upped the level of competitiveness and seriousness of it so mm-hmm. and I think at the time you know I, I ended up getting a lot better I ended up then getting to re, I'd say county stroke regional level mm-hmm. but there were some players some younger lads who ended up becoming a lot better than that and I probably played a part in that because I, I was the way that I was on court. Mm. You say your parents obviously helped you make that move across Yorkshire. I mean, Barnsley to Huddersfield for some people is like a foreign country. Um, <laughs> was was there ever any suggestion from them of like, okay, well, you know, we'll do this tennis thing, but you've got to get a real job at some point? Um, I was still at that time. I was only fourteen though, so you know, it was like they just wanted to keep. I, at school, I was all right. I had no real interest in school. I didn't like any particular subject. I was quite good at maths, but my maths teacher was a bit of a dick to me. So um, <laughs> That's pathological, all of them are. Yeah, so I kind of lost interest in that. And the, the teachers, I, I did like some teachers, but they're mainly the ones who I could talk about football with. <laughs> so um, I then decided to go. So then when I, that was, when I was 15 strokes, I was 15 when I left school in my 16th year. Um, there was a, I could go to two colleges. I could go to Barnsley College or I could go to um, Greenhead College in Huddersfield. And so I decided to go to Greenhead College in Huddersfield so I could be closer to the tennis, mm. um, and which meant you know I'd go in the morning and then I'd just go straight to tennis from there. My tennis improved a lot in that year. My I was barely I barely went to college if I'm honest, <laughs> like, um, but I wasn't really. Now the problem was I remember that year. The problem was and it was on court. I was playing. It was quite a big period, actually. This is 94. And 
um, it was it was during the US Open in 1994, which I was well into because that's the year that Andre Agassi won it. Um, and I remember that I was playing tennis on the middle Sunday, and and I was meant to start uh, I was meant to start Greenhead College on the Monday. Um, and I had an asthma attack on court while I was playing tennis. Hmm. Um, so I had to go in hospital. Um, so then I couldn't go to college um, for the first week, or maybe the first two weeks, actually, because I was in I was in uh, hospital for three or four days, and I came out, watched Agassi play the final um, on the Sunday night, and then I had another week, and then I couldn't... So I ended up missing the first two weeks of college, and when I got there, they told me I couldn't do the A-levels. I wanted to, because they were full. So I ended up going on some... Like some couple of A levels, I had zero interest in. Um, <laughs> and then after a year, I, I decided I went to Barnsley College then because by that time came around, we'd kind of moved from the the squad had moved from Huddersfield. It was kind of then scattered around a bit in Halifax and a bit in Thongsbridge. And then I, I got quite good in that year, to be fair. And then from that year, when I was then a year later, I went to Barnsley College and started all over again. But then a lot of my mates at that time had jobs, like Saturday jobs and that kind of thing. But I was, they don't have them now. There's a lot of money tournaments in Britain at the time. So I was just playing tournaments and that's where I was making, they were working for their money and I was playing tennis for it. And I was, <laughs> I was doing all right at that, at that stage. I was probably making 150, 200 quid a week mm. playing, playing tennis tournaments on a, um, at nights. They used to, the tournaments were at night and on Saturday and Sundays. Serious money in the 90s as well. Before it was the all right, yeah. yeah. That's where all my CDs came from. <laughs> Um, what what sort of player was was the young Calvin Beton? I mean, scrappy, <laughs> um, scrappy. I was fast, right? I was. I could. I could always run fast at football and tennis. Yeah, like really fast. Um, and I basically survived on being able to run fast and shit housing. And, <laughs> and somebody asked me like not long ago why I don't play vet, veterans tennis or like over forties tennis and that kind of thing. And I said because basically all I had at the start was like. I could run fast and shit housing, and I, I can no longer run as fast, and I'm I can't be shit housing at my age. Like, <laughs> like, um, and most old men you're playing against in senior tennis have seen it all before. Yeah, that's fairness. it. So, um, but yeah, it was main. It was driven by, it was driven by that, and then and then I, I then joined a full time squad. So then I had to make a decision whether I went to uni or not. Mm. Um, I didn't really want to go to uni. I enjoyed college more than school, but again, it was mainly because of going out and my mates who are still my mates now were all at um, college. So I really enjoyed that. But then I enjoyed the period of time rather than the actual education of it. And I just didn't want to go. I didn't want another three, four years of of studying, Mm. if I'm honest. So then I joined a full-time squad um, to play tennis. They they started a full-time squad at Bradford. Um, so I joined that, and then that that only lasted about six or seven months. And so then I just played. Um, I could have gone to American Uni when I was eighteen. That was one of the options, but I was playing really good tennis then, um, and I kind of made the decision that I'm just going to play rather than go to uh, uni at that stage. And I had some pretty decent scholarship offers mm. um, then, and I, that's I regret that that I didn't go. I, I should have gone then because mm. I wasn't. I can't. Although I was playing good tennis at the time, I kind of knew I wasn't good enough to be a professional by that stage. I kind of knew my limitations. At what point did you sort of uh, let that thought in your head that said I'm not good enough? At what point did it? Did you go? All right, I'm never going to be good enough. I think I always kind of knew in a way because um, I've always been quite 
astute with tennis and I've always known levels, what I can do, what I could do, what other players can do. And it's the same with players that I coach. And when I'm watching tennis, I'm pretty good at knowing like how a match is going to turn out just on the basis that he can do this and he can't do this and, and that kind of thing. So I always kind of knew, but then you kind of get to a stage where like you're a certain age and like you see players who are like four years younger than you and they're just miles better. And, <laughs> you know, and I could have kept on playing and like winning like bits of money, but I realised pretty early I wanted to be a coach as well. Yeah, so what, talk to me about that realisation. Was there a moment, was there Was there a day when you were injured and had to you know, help someone else out? What What was the process like? <laughs> I don't know whether I might incriminate myself here. Or not, but um, <laughs> but um, what happened was, because um, everyone, we were, there were a few of us at around about the same age who were all, same age, same level, who were playing, the good mates of mine, and we were in a full-time squad together. There were others who weren't in the squad and, Basically, what we were all doing, and this when we were all like 19, 20, we all like claimed dole as well. We all signed <laughs> on and took our, I think it was about 40 quid a week. I think the statute that, of limitations has gone on that. Yeah, I think yeah, you're right. Um, yeah. And then basically what happened after, a, I don't know, about a year, they they cottoned down and they were like, you're going to have to go and attend this like, uh, play. We, if you want to keep getting your dole money, you're going to have to keep... Uh, you're gonna have to go to this. It wasn't a job. It was like it was. It was weird. It was like a pretend job. It was like a pretend office. And I remember. Them, I remember it now. Them telling me about it. And I'm like, so it's not a job. And they're like, no, but it's it's an office. But they don't actually do any. You do admin. And I was like, for a company that don't exist. <laughs> and this was '99, right? This was 1999, April '99. It was. And I was like, I'm. I just. I went for a day. And then I figured, I'm just not doing this. And then at the time, Barnsley Tennis Club, where I'd played a bit, had, the coach who was then there had left. And my dad then was quite heavily involved in Barnsley Tennis Club. And he said, look, why don't you start doing a bit of coaching down there? Hmm. Um, so I was like, right, that's the end of the playing then. And I'll um, I'll go and do some coaching. But I, I coached for about a year. And then I went, I was still playing team tennis. Hmm. Um, still playing the odd tournament, but not really tournament. And then still playing uh, like Yorkshire League, which was a really competitive league. I played for Barnsley in, and then National Club League, which was again really competitive. I played for Halifax in that. I think we made the final one year. Um, and then I went to America for the first time uh, to see a mate of mine who was a tennis player, and um, he was training out in Florida, and that was two thousand. And I just loved it in America. And then I thought, I want to live here. And then I just realized the easiest way for me to live there was to go to uni. So I decided I wanted to go, I'd start playing again, hmm. just with the intention of going to uni. Um, and that was, a I made a balls up there with the decision, the uni that I decided to go to. And and as well, I, I made a big thing about it. And I think it's all about motivation. I'm I played great tennis in that. That was about, that was probably in the summer and I decided I wanted to go to uni in the January. And for that six-month period, I probably played the best tennis I've played because I had a real goal of something I wanted to achieve. Um, and once I got the scholarship like the to get to America, the kind of like I realised not long after I got to the States, actually, that the kind of the flame had gone out in me. I just didn't really want to be a tennis player. I didn't want to... Hmm. I just wanted to live in America. <laughs> but then the, I went to Tennessee... <clears throat> And it was a nightmare. Did University of Tennessee. Yeah, I did one semester, and it was it was worst worst time of my life. <laughs> what was so bad about it? Um, 
I mean, not was, wanting to be there is a real problem for a start. Well, but. for starters, we got I got there and the coach had basically got me there on the premise that... I mean, the whole thing was a shit show, to be honest. The coach had got me there on the premise that he'd give me my own apartment. So he said, like, look, you know, this is what we... Because in case anyone doesn't know, when you get a scholarship, you get a scholarship and it's a certain percentage of the total fees mm. and they, they can or cannot include... Um, accommodation okay so he said what he had left in terms of his scholarship he didn't have anything left but he said what i can do is um we have i can't give you any money for accommodation but we have an apartment that you can stay in right um that the tennis the tennis program owns an apartment just off the campus and you cost by that say i was 20 so i've done another two years so he said like you can we can give you that Mm. um and you can live in that, and that's unofficially it's part of the scholarship. So like, okay, yeah, that sounds that sounds great. So I got there. I remember, I got there on the night, and the coach picked me up and said, "Oh, by the way, that apartment, one of the players has got his girlfriend pregnant, so <laughs> they're going to have to live in that." And I was, and then I was like, "Going, okay, so where am I going to live?" And he goes, "We well, are going to live with me and my family for a while." <laughs> I'm like, well, this is not what I signed up for. Like, um, and then the bachelor pad has been traded for a lodger <laughs> in a family home. It gets worse, right? <laughs> um, and then so we got to his place. And this I, I landed at night, and we got there. We probably got there about eleven o'clock at night, and went into his place. And it was nice, you know, for his family. He had he was, had a wife and a, a young young baby, and they were really pleasant. And then I the next morning I got up to go to uni for the first time, and to. Um, and walked down some steps. I know we walked up some steps to the the part to the the house. Walked down some steps, and it was mo- like morning. As I looked around, and it was a trailer. Like, <laughs> it was on wheels, <laughs> but it was one of those massive ones, right? And I was like, "What on earth is going on here?" Like, and then, so in fairness, it was so big, you never felt like you were living in a trailer. But <laughs> after about three three weeks. I just thought, I just can't do this. Because the problem was I wasn't involved in uni. They lived about 40 minutes away from the uni and the campus. So I wasn't meeting anybody. I was going to my classes, going to tennis. The tennis facility was getting rebuilt Hmm. at the time. So we weren't even practicing at the time. We were practicing at a country club. Yeah. Um, It was very religious. (laughs) Like, it was very religious. I remember the first tennis practice we did was on a Saturday night. and, And I got a lift back with three girls who said they'd drop me back at the coach's house. And the, like they said, this was Saturday night, and they said, are you going to church in the morning? And I was like, no. <laughs> and they never spoke a word to me after that. <laughs> um, but um, So then after about three weeks, I said, look, I said to him, look, I really appreciate what you're doing, but I, I want to go and live like in on campus. And they yeah. said, well, you can do, but we that's not including your scholarship. Yeah, so yeah. then I was I was understanding of that. So what I did is I got a job. I started working in Starbucks. Um and I quite enjoyed it, to be fair. I quite enjoyed working in Starbucks. But <laughs> the campus was like, I had just one room that was like a cell. Didn't have any bedding on it or anything. Yeah. So basically, and you could only go to Waitrose. Somebody would take to Waitrose once or not Waitrose, Walmart. Yeah. Once a week. Quite different. Yeah. Um, and so I slept, the first week I just slept in my clothes. Um, <laughs> Jesus. And it was just the relent, like all that combined with... Um, I played football as well for them. So I played tennis and football, um, soccer, not yeah. American football, um, which I quite enjoyed. Quite enjoyed all that side of it. It was just the, the I didn't really enjoy the studying again um, and constantly being harassed about religion. Really? Was a problem for me, yeah. It was, it was 
Like people would literally come up to you if you're walking around campus and start harassing you. And you, there was no way out of it. It's like, what religion are you? It's like, I'm, I'm not really religious. They'd peck you, they'd go at you. I mean, like, that's the, the worst thing you can say, right? Because like, ah, oh, floating voter, we'll, well get him. Yeah, no, but then like, so then I'd say, what religion are you? I'm Christian, like, well, why aren't you going to church? And then like that, and then like, I can't do that again. What religion are you? I'm Catholic. Right, well, that's not, but they'd start arguing you about the, the ins and outs of right. the differences and that kind of thing. And I went through every religion and then I noticed that by the end, like about a week before I ended up coming home, somebody asked me and I said, I'm Jehovah's Witness and they ignored me. <laughs> I thought maybe if I'd, have said, if I'd have answered with that the first time, I might have enjoyed my time there a whole lot more. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Um, talk to me about, you know, one of the things that pod listeners will know regularly is your love of John McEnroe and, and, and that whole era of tennis, I would say. Um, talk to me about your early memories of, of the professional game, of, of watching tennis on TV. So it's different. I mean, John McEnroe's probably like, when he was actually in his prime, I don't remember a whole lot of it because I was a bit young. Mm. I mean, his best year was 84, so I would only have been six yeah. at the time. But my dad was a massive McEnroe fan. He absolutely loved He loved Borg as well, to be fair. It wasn't like either or, but my dad, he, he loved McEnroe. Mm. Um, and I remember like a lot of the time, and tennis wasn't on a great deal. This was back in the days when they only had three channels, four channels, maybe, three or four channels and i remember he'd come home from work sometimes he go like what you come over for he's like McEnroe's playing um <laughs> uh, and then that kind of thing so um he loved him and then i then i'll come back to McEnroe in a minute but then i really then started the first time i can i, I remember it being on McEnroe being on but i don't remember sitting and watching it the first match that i remember sitting watching extensively was when becker came through right um when he first i remember him winning wimbledon um, for the first time when he was, I think he was 17. Mm. Um, and then the finals after that, that was basically the only tennis that was on at the time was, was Wimbledon. So yeah. then the, the finals thereafter, like Becker won it the next year, I think, or year off, maybe, I can't remember whether he won it the next year or he won two in three years. Uh, and then Edberg and Becker played a few finals that I remember watching. And then, and then Agassi uh, was when I really started watching I remember there was a match where when Ag Agassi played Wimbledon, I think in 88 for the first time. 
and he lost to Henri Leconte and he never played on grass before. He played on outside court and then he didn't come back until I think it was 91 or 92. And he was 91. I know it was, he won it in 92. Um, he came back in 91. And the thing with Agassi was he'd got everyone, like there was the, there was the all white rule at Wimbledon. But most tennis players just wore all whites anyway, or right. mostly whites. They might occasionally wear a different colour pair of shorts. Um, and there was this huge thing about Agassi when he said he was coming back, because he wore fully garish outfits. He wore like black denim shorts with lime coloured, lime green um, cycling shorts underneath, and these like really short top with like black and lime green all over it, and all these different and our trainers were brilliant. And there was this big thing about is he gonna is he actually gonna observe the all white or because he, he wouldn't answer he managed it brilliantly from a PR point of view he wouldn't answer <laughs> it like and is he gonna do it and then he came out he was on centre court and he he warmed up in a tracksuit which you can warm you know you can warm up in a tracksuit that's yeah, fine yeah. everyone was like and then they were, the crowd just went silent when he went to sit down before the match started and he took his top and shorts when he's there in all whites but the brilliant thing was he had the same gear that he was wearing all year, but in all white. So he had the white denim cycling shorts, <laughs> with wh wh white denim shorts with white cycling shorts underneath. And he had the top, which was the same pattern that he wore, but it'd be white and white and really light gray. I see. And it was just brilliant. And I, and the crowd went mad. And then the crowd just like went mad when he took the, the gear off. And then from then he was like, Everyone wanted him to win the tournament. I think he made the quarters or last sixteen that year. Then he won it the next year. He did make quarters. Uh, bonus lost. points for anyone listening uh, home who can remember that he lost to David Wheaton. David Wheaton, yeah. indeed. Yeah. Um, who I'm not convinced has really achieved much. That might be the peak of his. No, Wheaton was all right. Wheaton was like a solid. I think he might have made top twenty. Made yeah, twelve in the world. Yeah, twelve in the yeah, world and a Wimbledon semi final. Yeah, really big serve. Uh, and briefly dated Mary Jo Fernandez. That's that's yeah. the interesting things I can tell they you. They were actually thing. both part of the first sort of set of players who went to Bolotieri's. Right. There was uh, there was Agassi, Wheaton, um, Courier was in there, mm. and Brian Shelton. Who is Ben Shelton's dad? I see. I didn't know he was part of that. Um, yeah. That Rat Pack. I see. Um, Talk to me about McEnroe then. Um, you said you'd come back to him. I mean, what? What? Why does your dad love him so much? I guess that's what he's. Like. I mean, he was just so charismatic and so different from anything. And I was thinking about this the other day, actually, that in terms of how different he is from anyone else who's who's been around in the last fifty years, I guess since since that sort of period of the mid seventies, I guess, where I think tennis really changed. I don't know what, what particularly changed it, but then I guess Borg came along and there were superstars. There were superstars outside of the game of tennis, I mm. think, and that's what Borg was. Then Macro followed that. So if you take the, the rankings from that point onwards, every single player who's been number one in the ranking and, and, a, and a dominant, anybody who's been number one has been one of two things. They've either been a huge server or they've been a brutally solid baseline player hmm. if you look at then you'd have the ones who are kind of had both like Federer was both really he was a brilliant baseline but also had a great serve hmm. and that kind of thing except for two players one was Pat Rafter who was only world number one for two weeks and that's no discredit to Pat Rafter I love watching Pat Rafter but he was a discrepancy in the rankings where people had points coming off and he never actually played a match as, he's the only world number one who's never played a match as world number one because wow. um, he was only world number one for two weeks and other than that was McEnroe who was neither a huge server or a baseline player. He's the only player since that mid-70s 
so 50 years, who has been world number one purely by touch and feel and court craft. Mm. And I think that's why I love him so much. I think he's, I've said it again, I don't think he's the greatest tennis player of all time, but I think I, I think he might be the best tennis player of all time. That if everyone was at, everyone at their best, I think he no one has ever had a understanding and feel of a tennis court, a tennis racket and a tennis ball combined like McEnroe did when you watched him. It was basically art when you watched him. And there's a kindred spirit in there with you, right? In that he, a he's a massive music fan, obviously, and yeah. you know plays guitar, and also he's, I mean, maybe not a shit house, but he's certainly a very I angry mean, man. I mean, was, <laughs> was, but um, yeah, I, I, you know, and, and he was theatre as well. I remember even when my dad was one, my dad loved it, and my dad's always been weird because he hated Connors for the particular reason that he loved McEnroe. <laughs> like, 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 they were both shit houses, really, but like the only difference was Connors was like as a tennis player wasn't as pretty, but McEnroe was like a beautiful player how he played and that kind of thing. But um, I, I think it was like yeah, just watching him with, with everything was theatre. Like he'd, he'd create it, and even his serve was like I. I don't think he did it for that reason. That was just his natural service action. But when he's, he's, there's a great picture of it and it pops up on Twitter and Instagram every now and then where it's like the US Open with a huge crowd behind him and he's lining the serve up. Mm. Yeah. And it was it was just the most theatrical serve. Him and Becker had the two most theatrical serves because Becker would do this thing where he'd start rocking like in, yeah. in, in his motion and like the whole crowd were like focused on him. Whereas you look at like Federer and Nadal and... Um, and Sampras, Sampras was a quick motion. He'd go into his little foot up and then just bang an ace down and, hmm. and that kind of thing. But yeah, I think it was just a completely unique talent that we've never seen. And I don't think we'll see the like of it again, the way that he played. It's hard to think. I mean, if you look at the current, you know, top 20, it's, there's there's not that much differential, is there, in terms of how they play? No, and I don't... You'll get players who... There's been players who've survived on, like, feel and touch and that kind of thing. There's not been anybody who's been to world number one. Like I say, so Rafter was the last one who got to world number one with he was serve volleyer, but but he he didn't have a huge serve. But he had a great kick serve, right? Um, and he, he he basically won two U.S. Opens with that, and he had a two years run of form where he was just brilliant. And either side of that two years was pretty middling. Well, I say middling. He was a top twenty player, mm. but um, yeah. But McEnroe was just just completely unique, and I just loved that about him and his whole attitude and mentality and. I think you can, you know, I, I quite, I'm one of the few people who seems to quite enjoy him commentating, to be honest. <laughs> I, I think he, uh, I mean, I've said this before and people have had a go at me and I, I stand by, I don't think he watches a huge amount of tennis. No, he doesn't. He doesn't, I don't think. But, and again, I don't know why, I can understand why he doesn't. You know, it's like when something, and, and I know that, you know, because I watched the documentary with him, that the, I'll come back to it later about me, that the, the sport consumed him. Mm. And I think then he's tried to find ways of, while still loving the sport, of moving away from it. So yeah. I don't think he does watch loads of it. What I find him interested in is the mentality in the big matches, the big moments. Yeah. Of, and there's not many people who've, who've had that yeah. as much as he has. Um, let's come back to you. And we kind of left off and tangented away, but. Talk to me about your coaching career and do you remember the first time you realised you were a good coach or maybe the first player you had a really big impact on? It wasn't one player. Uh, when I was coaching at Barnsley Tennis Club, after I'd been there for a, a couple of years, then I, I, I had the kind of eight months off when I went to uni in the States and then came back. They 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 hadn't really appointed anyone in the interim, so I just went straight back into it. Mm. Um, after I'd been there for a couple of years, I got a group of players, group of lads, 
who all lived around within a mile of the tennis club who just loved coming like mm. rain or we'd play in the rain it was tarmac courts during we went right through the year we had four outdoor tarmac courts and we'd play every single we do it on a thursday night and a saturday morning um and then some of them had individual lessons but that group of them started doing okay you know they were they were complete beginners so they went from complete beginners to they started entering the odd tournament and doing okay and then they all started playing for the teams like lower down in the like lower divisions for the Barnsley tennis teams and I remember them thinking right I've done all right with them they mm. they couldn't play tennis at all and now they're all playing they're all winning matches to a, a certain level yeah and so then presumably you have to get into the system right you have to start doing badges and, and coaching courses and yeah, I did my first one not long ago. I did it basically when I started coaching. So I did it 99, that, that spring summer of 99 was quite big because that's when I stopped playing, started coaching, started doing my coaching qualification, my first coaching qualification, and Man United won the treble. Um, <laughs> and that's where I remember the, again, this won't reflect great on me, but on the last day of the the DCA, which was, it's now the level three, but at the time it was the first one that you did because you had to do, you had to do another course because I played to a decent enough level. I was fast tracked straight to that. Okay. Um, but the, the last day of it, um, I, the last day of when they did the assessment was the day that my United, we were going for the treble and we were, play, it was the last day of the league season and we played Spurs to win the league and it was one all at half time. And the course wasn't running as quick. The last day wasn't running as quick as it was. And I was like, look, can we just get it on? Because I need to go and watch the football. It was on in the next room. And they go like, um, no, we're still doing it. And I was like, I'm going to go and watch the football. <laughs> and so I, fa I failed on that day. And then I, had to do a re I had to do a reset about two weeks later. Um, worth it? 100% worth it. <laughs> I'd, do it every, I'd do it every single time again. And the, co the coaches, to be fair, the tutors, who both of now I get on really well with, they just laughed about it. Um, and they'd laugh about it with me now. Uh, they both remember it. No one's ever done that. Like, um, but yeah, it was... Th those six weeks were, were mainly to do with the football were the best six weeks of my life. They were... That, like, the excitement in it was, was phenomenal. Where's the Man United thing come from? Uh, my dad was a big Man United fan, still is, um, and he just told me that we support Man United. Um, <laughs> I remember it was the 1985 Cup final. Man United played Everton, and um, my dad was like, "Ren, ready for it?" And I was like, "Who are we supporting?" And he's like, "We support Man United." That's, and so then, I, was, I remember I said to him, like, "Who, who are we supporting?" And he's like, "We support Man United. They're in red." And I was like, "Who's their best player?" And he's Brian Robson. And then nothing's changed since then. It's funny because Brian Robson, I feel like, doesn't get. Like when people talk about the great Man United players, he, I think his name very rarely comes up. I think it's like, I, I do think that's a recency bias. I know, for example, because uh, one of my friends works with Alan Shearer, I know Alan Shearer thinks Brian Robson is England's best ever player. Really? Um, and he's he's certain about it. And I do, he, he was brilliant. He, he got injured a lot. And like and he got injured. There's a, there's a great, I don't know what the documentary, it might be Brian Robson's own documentary, but there's, there's a clip of an interview with Brian Clough um, and he said, like, what's the best and worst thing about Brian Robson? Uh, they asked Brian Clough what's the best thing and worst thing about Brian Robson. He said it's the same answer. He, he doesn't have the capacity to feel fear. Like, he just, he, that's the best thing. And he's uh, the reason he gets injured so much is he doesn't, if he sees the ball, he doesn't think, well, I might get my leg broken here. Hmm. He'll just dive in. Um, and 
and yeah, he was he was like a superhero at the time. My United were a bit crap at the time. They were really a cup team, but Brian Robson was. I I, I know lots of people think that England would probably have won at least one World Cup if if Brian Robson hadn't got injured in '86 and in '80 in '90. Is there also an element of? I mean, English teams were banned from Europe in that late eighties, and so yeah, true. But ninety, we're pretty close. We lost in the semis on penalties, mm. um, and in eighty six, we weren't banned yet. So right. um, I think it was just. I mean, he was he was probably the best player in. There was Maradona, uh, who you know kind of went in and out, and other than Maradona, he was probably the best player in the world at mm. the time. And there's a great clip actually because it's funny how they do they don't do these kind of matches now, but after England had lost to Argentina, I think, in the... Um, in the in, in no. 86, 86. And Maradona scores what's generally regarded as the greatest goal ever. And he basically just breezes past about five English England players. And, and there's... I remember somebody once saying, it was on Twitter, that like if Brian Robson was playing, Maradona would not have scored that goal. He would have been cleaned, <laughs> like Brian Robson had tackled it. And then somebody quote, somebody quote, uh, like replied with a video, and it was like about a year after that England, or not even that long, maybe six months after that, that match, it was England against the rest of the world. And Robson's playing it, Maradona's playing in it. And Maradona picks the ball up in the exact same spot and turns and goes, right past, goes past somebody. And you think, oh, it's on it. And then Brian Robson just comes, cleans the cleans the ball out. Perfect tackle. Like, doesn't foul him, just perfect tackle. And like you think, right, you never know what might have happened. Course but, of um, history could have changed. But yeah, so then it was it was that and then um and then like I say, we weren't great, so we weren't winning loads. And then it was when Eric Cantona came that that's when I really like that's when football got serious. Hmm. Um for me. There's a lot of Man United fans in Barnsley. Um, I know a few, yeah. I mean, we supported, like, so my dad's garage was 50 yards from Barnsley's football ground. Right. So my dad used to go, my dad used to watch Man United a lot in the 70s and early 80s. Then when his business started doing well, he, he couldn't get over to Old Trafford because he'd work on Saturday afternoons. And then, then he, we always went to watch Barnsley on a Saturday afternoon. Mm. Um, my dad sort of, he's, he's a Man United fan first and a Barnsley fan second. I can't, I was always a Man United fan and then kind of liked Barnsley. And then I stopped I knew a lot, a lot of my mates were Barnsley fans who hated Man United. <laughs> so then I kind of lost my love for Barnsley Football Club through that. Although I do still always hope they win. I've been I've been watching a couple of playoff finals at Wembley and that kind of thing. Hmm. Um, let's drag you back into your present career. I mean, would you say you're at your peak as a coach? Are you always improving? Like, how how do you reflect on your own abilities as a coach? Yeah, I I think I, without sounding like a bit of an idiot I I'm a, I do think I'm a very good coach mm. I think I'm in the top echelon of coaches who are around yeah. um, in the world I'd say you know I, I coach world I coach very very good players high, highly ranked players mm. um, and I kind of know when I see other coaches and think yeah he's a good one and he's not and, and that kind of thing so yeah and I'm I'm qualified now I'm, I'm I'm the highest qualified I'm the highest qualification that you can get as a tennis coach so what would you say is your big kind of coaching philosophy? You know, in, in a couple of sentences, what is your what is the Calvin Beton way? I don't like doing lots of repetitive closed drills. Um, that's I would. That's what most people know me by. I'm quite, um, I guess, coaching like f- coaching nerds would would know me as someone who who has an ecological approach. I like to get situations similar to how they look. Uh, the things I'll always ask myself. When I when I come up with a drill or a game, is does it is it representative 
of tennis does it look like a tennis match mm. and a lot of tennis doesn't a lot of a lot of training doesn't if you've just got one player in one corner another in another corner you're just drilling it cross court with each other that doesn't look like a tennis match mm. um and i like to it, i like things to be as rep as close to i'll always try and bring them as close to an actual tennis match as, as i possibly can and then you sometimes you have to drag it back a little bit and make it a little bit more closed but i don't like just getting the basket out and feeding balls do you think there's something that amateurs can take away from there? Do you think in amateur tennis or you know club tennis people do yeah, drill I, too much? Yeah, I, the question I get asked loads is like, I'm thinking about getting a ball machine, which one should I get? And my answer is always don't. <laughs> so it's nothing like playing tennis at all. It, it will account for about 3% of what tennis is. I guess it's better than literally being on your own and hitting a ball over a net and then going and getting it. Yeah, but I think it's like people don't, realize where the limit is like if you don't have anyone to play with and you yeah it's better than nothing but understand that something is better than a ball machine is it better than a wall it's the same (laughs) it's the same i mean no it's it's not as good as a wall because when you hit a ball the problem with a ball machine without getting boring right is that what you hit is completely irrelevant to the ball that comes back yeah like you hit a ball here with this pace this spin it doesn't matter the ball that comes out the the, the ball machine is exactly the same. Whereas against a wall, when you hit a ball, you've got an idea what you can expect back. Right. So I'd, I'd say it's not as good as a ball machine. Uh, but uh, it's not as good as a wall. So cognitively, I guess, there's at least a it's little all, It's bit all about to... that and reading the mat, you know, and that's what... I used to coach a girl who was one of the... She was an excellent player. She was British number one. And her mum had her on a ball machine every morning before I coached her. Hmm. And what it gave her was she was, a, she was an excellent ball striker. But she... I spent so many hours trying to get her to read the game yeah. and she wasn't a stupid girl she was a clever girl and just trying to get her to understand like when you hit this shot this is what you can expect mm. but she wouldn't she just hit this shot and then she'd go to the next side expecting the ball would always go back there <laughs> and I remember like <laughs> wait I was uh, her uncle is a good friend of mine and still is he was um, her mum's brother and we had to get her eventually to get rid of the ball machine because she kept wanting to get her on it. And it was like, like we had to like almost have like a... It was like someone had died when she got rid of the ball machine. <laughs> you were a Viking funeral for no, it. There was all sorts going on. It was like it broke and one of the wires was snapped inside it. And I remember her uncle going like, She's cut it. I know she's cut the wire in such <laughs> so she can't sell it and she's going to try and get it repaired. And then, like, so he got an electrician to come in and fix it. And then, like, they sold it on eBay. And she was genuinely, like, like I remember, like, he was saying to me, because I was there when the guy from me, he's like, I drove to the house to, to watch her get it in the, watch the guy get to it in the car. To make sure it went. Because she was crying. She was oh crying. My God. Like, but, um, yeah, it was that was from that's so yeah, I'd say that's what my um my philosophy is that I like to get it as close to I hate and you see this a lot in America, I hate people with um coaches with baskets and trolleys of you yeah. know, there's certain situations. I'm not opposed to it. it's always situations, always it depends. Like but you go to the States and you see someone with a trolley of balls and they're like, Oh, come on. Yeah. Like what what are you achieving there? I see. Um, what was, can you remember the first tournament you sat in a, co- a professional tournament you sat in a coach's box and and did your job? It's it's a bit it's not as black and white because so basically when I was playing tennis and then I had a lot of friends who were who were better than I was who ended up getting really good 
and then because I could play a little bit, I'd go. Some of them had asked me to go to tournaments with them as just to hit if their coach couldn't make it and that kind of thing. So I would still like I'd be there sometimes as be in the box sometimes. Like my friend, one of my best friends, Dave Sherwood, who was brilliant player, like absolutely brilliant player. Who's like really sad story that he hasn't he didn't make millions out of the game. Um, and he played Wimbledon the first time, so I was there when he went. Um, he won a round. He won his first round at Wimbledon. And I was there then in the coach's box, but his his coach at the time was a mate of mine. But I also did some travelling with Dave when his coach couldn't do it. So I couldn't say that the first time I was ever in the coach's box, um, the first tournament I ever went to with when I was specifically coaching a, a very good junior. A, the first one abroad I went to, I went to Copenhagen mm. with a couple of lads I coached. And then... I don't know in the first futures I went to abroad. I did some in the UK. Yeah. Um, but the first futures I went to abroad may have been Armenia with um lad who's one of my very best mates now, Ross Connolly. When he was playing, he asked mm. me to go to um, Armenia with him. We went there. Do you get a buzz out of what? What, what gives you? I guess is a better way of saying it. What gives you the buzz? You know, is it is it going to these places? Is it is it just winning matches? Is it Seeing people achieve their it's goals. It's the whole thing, yeah. It's the whole thing. I, I love match day. Like, I know a lot of coaches say that they hate match day, but I love it. I love watching the matches and the whole day around it. I don't enjoy it if we lose. But, <laughs> um, yeah, the travelling, the preparation, all that kind of thing. I, I, I love it, yeah. Hmm. You sort of alluded to something earlier about tennis consuming you. Do you feel like you got to a point in your life where tennis did and you had to get out of that? or No, it has, and I don't think I have got out of it. <laughs> <laughs> um, I still, now, I, I know it still consumes you too much. And yeah. The job, and the job, not the sport, yeah, I think the job, what I do, it consumes me. I have to be, I'm aware of it, and I have to try and manage it, but I still think it's over the line too much of the time, both in terms of what I can do in my life and when the lads lose... I, I don't get in a bad, angry mood. I just get really disconsolate and down about it. It's weird. Like, certain matches don't affect me, and then, like, you know, certain ones do. Like, when um, when Luke... I went to Saint-Tropez with Luke and Henry um, a couple of months ago after the US Open, and that match... They lost that match. They lost a close one against two very good players. Um, but that match affected me more than any other this year. Like, I was just so gutted about not disappointed in them by any stretch like they played a good match and I was just I don't know why I was just like for a few hours after I was and I need to be better at stuff like that so um, Uh, it's interesting I mean have you been able to put your finger on why that match in particular or just I think it's because I coached both of them and I know that they're both very very good I have complete belief that both of them are going to the top of the game and they're both as well they're both Great lads. Like, yeah. I'm extremely lucky to work with two lads who are both top lads. And I remember thinking, like, they don't play together, but they they did for this this one time. I'm thinking, like, oh, you know, I know they're good. And I know I'm a good coach. And, like, you know, I, th- I fancy we could win this tournament. And then they, the draw was a stinker, to be fair. They were one space out against seeded, and they drew the top seeds. Mm. Um, and 10-8 um, in the third, was it? Yeah, and it was against Arniedo and Weissborn, who who had made final of Monte Carlo. So they'd be final of a Master Series this year. Yeah. Um, and um, 
I don't know why, but some matches, you know, some matches are just like that, and then some matches they'll. I'm never happy when they lose. I'm always a bit down, but some I can just get get over in. And it's the same as well. It's not straightforward. I've, I've, there's been t- matches and tournaments that we won, and I thought I'd get a lot more joy out of it than I did. Mm. Um, and then like you know, I'd, at the end of it, I'd, like five minutes after the final, going, oh right, thought I'd <laughs> feel a bit better than that, but but don't. But yeah, it's. Um, and I know that makes me difficult, like, to be around as well at times after that's happened. I can't, I can't imagine that, Calvin, on any level. <laughs> <laughs> I don't get like, I don't get like mood. I just find it difficult to hold conversations when yeah. when that happens. You, you know? sort of want to close yeah. in on yourself. Yeah. Um, you, you sort of alluded to a couple of regrets, and um, but if there is one thing you change about maybe the way your coaching career has gone, is there anything you would change that you had done? Yeah, I'd, I'd learn how to coach earlier. like, And, and that's, that's the one thing I always say to tennis players who are thinking about going into coaching. You have to learn how to coach. Because knowing about tennis, knowing about strokes and tactics is 20% of coaching. Mm. The actual knowing how to coach, knowing about feedback when to feedback, knowing about human beings, how to talk to people, how people are different, how to get your point across to different ways to different people. It's not just telling somebody how to play tennis and understand. And then on top of that, learning actual coaching methodology and coaching theory about how people learn and that kind of thing. Again, it's not just, um, it's not just telling people. Mm. And I'd, as everyone is, I was, I was know-it-all. And I thought, yeah, I know how to do this. And I never considered it until I went on, it was on my level five when we started doing stuff like that. And I wish, I don't know why none of the other coaching qualifications I've been on have done it. But it's what always, I always shake my head when I hear somebody saying about another player, somebody saying about a player, oh, he'll make a good coach. And you think, well, you've no idea of that because you don't until they know, they might have a brilliant tennis brain. And there's been many people that have brilliant tennis brains who know about to know everything there is to know about tennis, but cannot get that information across to somebody else. And unless you have the tools to get that information across, or unless you understand how people learn, how people take in information, then you won't be, you'll be completely worthless as a coach. And I think that is, I really wish that I'd have done that earlier Hmm. myself and understood that earlier. And I still get now with players. I know that player asked, um, I know that player was asking somebody in uh, the LTA, somebody who's, um, a player who's recently decided to quit playing, and he's gone like, well, is there any chance I can get fast-tracked to one of my qualifications? And I was talking to the person who told me about that, and I, I, he said, oh, so-and-so has asked me if he can get fast-tracked. And I was like, well, this is what annoys me now. And, it, and I did it. I'm not putting myself out like I did the same. <laughs> what annoys me about it is people just see it as the qualifications. There's a course that you you do you do to learn how to become that you wouldn't and it wouldn't happen in any other job in any other walk of life you wouldn't get somebody deciding they want to be a lawyer and then going oh is there any chance you can just get the the quali- the bar uh, is there any chance you can just get the bar qualification like, <laughs> I can be fast track because I've been quite good at arguing before <laughs> like, you know you actually have to know the law like, you actually have to know how to do stuff and like you, you know get being a doc imagine someone going to doctor like oh, you know I was quite good at biology so. <laughs> Is there any chance to get fast track to like the GP qualification? Like, you have to, it's not just getting the qualifications; it's actual the course, and they've got a lot better now. They were crap, but they've got a lot better now. You have to learn. I just keep reiterating it: people have to learn how to coach, not just understand about tennis. Sure. 
Um, before I go into my silly quickfire questions at the end, um, if you, one of them I suppose is quickfire. If you weren't a tennis coach, what do you think you'd be doing? I always I wanted to be a music producer, um, <laughs> and I guess that's. I always think coaching is the same as being a music producer. To be fair, because no, knowing when to feedback and when to not. Yeah, it's it's, and no one really knows what a music producer does because they all do <laughs> different jobs. Like yeah. some of them are sat on the desk. They're there on the desk. They're moving the dials, moving the, like they're mixing it and that kind of thing. Some and some of them are actual great musicians who can add in different stuff, like George Martin was with the Beatles. Some of these guys they don't play anything, mm. but they say they stand at the back and they just go like maybe do this, maybe do that. And it's it, it again. It depends on the quality of the songs, as it depends on the talent of a tennis player. Like you can't you can't polish turd. Like, you can um, roll it in glitter. Yeah, you can roll it in glitter. Yeah, but. Um, and and it's it's just like that kind of thing. You're basically the the input you can have as a coach. I always think is around the maximum input you can have into a player is somewhere is about fifteen percent. Right. Um. And that fifteen percent could be huge. Uh. It could be nothing. Hmm. But it, and I think that's the same as a as a music producer. You're just there. You're advising. You're 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 finding a way to get the best out of the band. As I'm trying to find a way to get the best out of players. But yeah, I always wanted to be a, a music producer. I mean, I've, I've always loved music. I've played guitar since I was 11. Um, so that's kind of something I wanted to do. But they're never really, I've never really had a route into it, to be mm. honest. Well, maybe if you get the Shapovalov job, you could help him with some of his. Yeah, stuff. I don't want to be his music. <laughs> and I appreciate we've barely talked about music, but um, such is the rich tapestry of your life, Cal. We can't squeeze it all in. That's for next year, maybe. Um, well, on that note, what would be if you were a dance player or a tennis player? What would be your walkout song? Do you think uh, that change all the time? I think what, what it would have been because um, Man United always come out to this is the one by the Stone Roses, mm. and I used to love that. Because like it would always it, for many years it would be so imposing like cause I go, I go to Old Trafford like I'm, I I go to most matches and when the music starts then like you can see like the effect it has on the crowd and the effect it has on the other team and we'd be winning so much but now we're crap and they still play it and it's kind of <laughs> lost its mystique a bit so I'm not having that um, I'd probably have um, what would I have I'd probably have um, Street Fighting Man Rolling Stones. Very good. Uh, I think I know the answer to this, but Dream Doubles partner? Uh, Johnny Mac. Yeah, yeah. no question. Uh, Favourite tennis tournament? US Open. Uh, has that changed since you've been to the US Open and had a hit on Ash? Or? It was the first time I went to US Open. I thought it was brilliant. I had yeah. a great time. Like, everything about it. The tournament, I think, was great. Um, the, I mean, it helped that we, we had a pretty good tournament. Yeah. Um, I loved being... I love tournaments when you're in the city. When you're... I think this is... One of the reasons I'm, I've not been to Australian Open yet, one of the things I hold against Paris and Wimbledon is you don't feel like you're in... You could be anywhere at those places, whereas US Open, you stay in Manhattan. I know yeah. everyone does it, but you stay in Manhattan and it's right there. The skyline's right there. It's it's two or three miles away from from everything. And like Wimbledon, you can be... The, the last two years I've been at Wimbledon, I haven't been into London any yeah. of the times. Yeah. Um. You're on death row. What's your last meal? I like Indian food. I'd probably have a chicken sag and a plain paratha bread and a jug of mango lassi and a Coca-Cola. <laughs> well, uh, which might answer my final question, which is if you could only drink one drink 
for the rest of your life. It's, I mean, it'd be Coca-Cola, but I, I haven't really got into Pineapple Fanta. <laughs> it's, like, it's a phenomenal drink. I brought three cans yesterday. <laughs> that that might stumble into the grounds of addiction. But yeah, um, yeah. Calvin, it's been an absolute pleasure. I mean, I've known you for many years and I've learned a lot about you today. Thank you for being so open. Pleasure. Podcast Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, Lil. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.